Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, folks. It's a, it's a beautiful, snowy morning. I think it's great, you know. Yeah, a little snow never hurt anybody. The assigned topic for us this weekend is cheap grace versus discipleship. And I'll get to that in just a moment, but before I do, <clears throat> a couple of things. One, uh, I've been a little bit disappointed in the number of people who have indicated bought tickets to come to the, the uh, Thanksgiving dinner on the 21st. Uh, David Literal, uh, I enjoy calling him the biggest pain I ever was around in my life. The truth of the matter is, we've traveled all over the world together, and, and uh, I'd rather travel with him, I think, than anybody I ever traveled with. He, he, he works, he's not a problem, he just is mouthy, but I can live with that, you know. But David makes these dinners and charges zero for them, and his hope is that it will encourage the congregation to reach out and bring friends to eat with us and so on and so forth and ultimately help the congregation go through, get out of the COVID thing and, uh, and begin uh, what we would consider to be natural growth of a congregation. Actually, Saturday night services is, is growing noticeably. And... Uh, We've been in touch with some people where they're anticipating two or three baptisms. Um, <clears throat> but if you haven't secured your tickets, we, I would encourage you please to do that because the only reason we charge anything at all is so that we know how many warm bodies are going to show up. That's, that's really the reason we do it. And, uh, <clears throat> and if you can't afford it, just go get you some tickets and, and, and use them to bring someone with you that doesn't have a church home. There's lots of folks out here like that, and if you would do that, it would be greatly appreciated. And uh, because we're kind of planning a fun evening, just a relaxing and fun evening together. And, um, and so I just wanted to make sure you, and, and, and so that there's an appreciation for what David does, I think that's important because sometimes we don't give the recognition for what people do. Now, uh, Alice Kay has this thing coming Monday. She has had a, um, I don't know what kind of relationship with the book of Esther in the last three or four, ever since the COVID thing started, that's, she'd been studying and working and finally published that book and all that good stuff. And so there, we were conned into going over to, uh, uh, Virginia or, or Pennsylvania and, and, and had to go through Virginia to get there to uh, see a big old play in a big old building about Esther and I did not off once I'll be honest with you it was so exciting but the play was really good and so we got a DVD and that's what she's going to show you on Monday night and asking you women to come and bring a, bring a guest because it is an enjoyable presentation and it's extremely well done. Now, 
probably there was some other stuff I was supposed to say, but uh, I don't remember it. That's what happens when you're my age. Let's talk about grace for a little bit. I put in the thing that went out on the internet, and I put it on the, your outlines. If you have one there, that years ago, back in 1972, a, a guy by the name of Hudson published a book that was turned out to be a really good read on the subject of grace as taught in the Bible. The title of the book was Grace is Not a Blue-Eyed Blonde. And uh, it was a title that got the attention of enough uh, ornery old cusses like me that we bought the book and read it, and it's extremely well done. But the book, it, the, the, the subject of grace itself <clears throat> is probably viewed by most lost people who have come to Christ. And I'm talking about guys who were world-class sinners who have come to Christ probably appreciate grace as taught in the Bible more than many of the rest of us. The Greek word is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And if it were used in the street and not with religious, because all of the New Testament was written with Greek, Greek language, and it was street language. It's called Koine Greek, common Greek, that was used in the language by Joe Blow. And, um, and the literal meaning of the word charis was a gift given to somebody that produced real joy in the recipient. Now, if you carry that concept over into the Christian arena, grace, God's grace expressed through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, promised that goes with it, it should produce in the recipient of that grace real joy. The Bible uses the term wonderful joy. And, and so that's, that's, the, that's the powerful picture behind the Greek word that is translated grace. Now, actually, grace is a part of a, of a two-faced coin. On one side is the word mercy. On the other side is the word grace. Grace means I'm going to give you a gift that you did nothing to earn. Mercy means I'm not going to give to you what you deserve because I love you. That's the reason John 3.16 was probably through the years been the most popular and, and widespread believed and, and memorized verse in the Bible. Mercy and grace. And grace is what we're going to look at today. And, and, and we'll start off with a couple of passages of Scripture. I didn't put them there. You should be taking notes if you're interested in this kind of good stuff. Because in probably the, the most quoted verse in regard to grace is found in the book of Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 8 and 9 in particular, where the Apostle Paul is talking about grace as it relates to the church. And we'll, it will take a personal thing just as soon as we finish with this. He said, and God, it is starting at verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ 
and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. Ten cent store language, that means when we become a Christian and our, and our, int, our primary interest is in Christ, he, we then have a relationship with him who is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for guys like you and me. We have that, and, and that's legal term really, we have a, a lawyer presenting our case before God himself. And that lawyer is none other, that mediator is none other than Jesus himself. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it was by grace, we could say it was by such a wonderful gift that it produces joy in the life of the recipient that you have been saved through faith. And that faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. And not by works, so that no man can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, that's, that's in regard to the church universal. The Apostle Paul actually addressed that same subject in, in, I, in I think, just a magnificent way. Over in the 12th chapter of the book of 2 Corinthians, he refers to a problem he had. Those of you who are interested in medicine or know anything about eye diseases, in the, in the commentaries, it's re, the, it, it is assumed that he had a, an eye problem called ophthalmia. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't really know, because so many people in that era had real headache and eye problems due to malaria as well. But the Apostle Paul addresses the fact that he has this problem that, that debilitates him at times, that it really upsets him. And so he, he puts it like this, starting at verse 7. He's talking about a personal experience now and how grace is related to it. He said, to keep me from becoming conceited, the Apostle Paul, by his very name, the, the word Paul or Paulus means little guy. Little guys have a tendency to want to project the image of being tougher than big guys. That just goes with the picture. We call it uh, the little man syndrome, Napoleonic syndrome, all, all the same stuff. It's like when you look back over your life, you have a tendency to exaggerate uh, some things in the past. You know, I talk to you all all the time about how a wonderful basketball player I was. And I guarantee you that what I tell you, that what I was wasn't as good as what I tell you, if you follow that a little bit. It was the guy who wrote, the old guy who was a great humorist and a wonderful uh, writer who wrote Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn and all that good stuff, World Travelers, well, he, he said in one of his books that the older I get, the further I could swim when I was a kid. And that, that just kind of happens to us as we get older and we reminisce and we kind of doll it up for our grandchildren and so on. The Apostle Paul had a great ego, and it was a problem for him. 
And it's a problem for many preachers because we have a tendency sometimes to believe what the elderly ladies tell us that we're so wonderful. And by then, they would say that to anybody, but we, yeah, we go on. Anyway, the Apostle Paul was a little man with that problem. He says, because of the surpassing great revelations that was given to me. See, God gave to him through the power of the Holy Spirit the capacity to write most of the New Testament and to write it so that it actually was the fulfillment of the mind of God for us today. He said, because of these great revelations and my propensity toward conceit, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made manifest or made obvious in your weakness. You see, if it is obvious that the results of what we do when we preach the gospel or carry out the ministry is far above what we are capable of doing in the flesh, then God gets the glory. And that's a big issue. Who gets the glory here? My mother said that within all of us is the tendency to want God's glory. And she always used to say, Blessed is he who toots his own horn, for it shall be well tooted. And so we live with that possibility, and the Apostle Paul struggled with it. And I suspect that all of us have a tendency. What worries me at times, and I'm dealing now with the possibility of two or three baptisms of primarily young folks, what worries me is are they being baptized? And I've, this is a reason why I struggle with infant baptism because I, it's not in the scripture, but I struggle with it for, for other reasons. I worry about at what age does a young person get to the place where they realize that when they're saved, they're receiving a gift that is so wonderful that it causes great joy to bubble up within them. I worry about that because what I've looked at through the years watching the church as its influence is less than it used to be. Even though the numbers in many cases are greater than they used to be. And I wonder why. And I struggle in my own mind. Do we have congregations filled with people who are religious but not godly? Faithful to the church but not spiritual. I struggle with that in my mind. And it's probably worse today than it's ever been. Because you want to see people used by God to accomplish the purpose that he brought them into this world to do. 
God's saving grace should be sufficient when we're saved and we're aware that we're saved, that it produces joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let's look at grace then as it relates to where it came from in regard to our salvation. It is difficult for us at times because of our egos to, to get our arms around and our head around the fact that our salvation had nothing to do with anything we thought or did. Salvation was all of what God did in, to, in proving the fact that he loved us so much that his most important and loved possession could be sacrificed on our behalf. You see, God knew what we have difficulty admitting. We sometimes think that something we can do would impress God. Actually, there is, but we'll get to that in a minute. When it comes to salvation, nothing. Nothing in our hands we bring, the poet said. Simply to the cross I cling. We have real difficulty getting to the place where Jesus is the single most important thing in our life. Oh, we can say it and be glib about it, but to really mean it? I think it's few and far between. Let me read to you something that will make you parents really uncomfortable. It's found in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus was talking about where he rates, where God rates in your life, in our order of priorities, where, where does he fit? In verse 37, he says this, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or his daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds his life in this world will lose it. And whoever loses his life as we want to live it in the flesh will find it. That's really hard, but it's nonetheless true. And my observation is that through the years, we have ignored this. We put our job, we put our family, we put everything before Jesus, and he's on the list, all right. I believe that. He's on the list, all right. But because he's not at the top of the list, 
things have deteriorated in our culture to the extent that even the church blinks its eye toward sin. We have to reevaluate starting with ourselves because all of us want to be somebody. We want our kids to be somebody. Listen to me, folks. If it's possible for us to help you produce godly children, not just churchgoers, Satan goes to church on a regular basis, but, but godly children, why wouldn't you cooperate? We're getting ready to ask all of you to, to, to and we have them done, to hand out to you free, to work through a little workbook on the fundamentals of the faith so that everybody knows, everybody starts, and all new converts will do the same thing. It won't cost you anything, but it'll take some effort because we want you to know who God is, how he's revealed himself in Christ Jesus, the value of the scripture as a part of the food that you eat for your spiritual growth. The weakness of the church today is because we haven't insisted on Jesus being the top of the ladder because we're all tempted. We all I can remember growing up how important athletics were in my life because my coach was my ended up being the best friend I ever had. He was also our principal because that's when they worked in the schools a little different than they do now. Mr. Painter was a World War II artillery captain, came back to teach school and he was in junior high, so he was our junior high principal. He was our math and, and, uh, and civics teacher, algebra and civics teacher. He was our junior high coach. He finally retired and went to Lexington and opened a CPA office there. But he stayed in touch with us. And when we were lucky enough to go up to Cynthiana, Kentucky, and play Paris basketball team, they were bigger than we were. And quite honestly, they were better than we were. But it's like what happened here last night. Wheelersburg beat Ironton. And Ironton was better and bigger than they were. Or at least that's what I was told. I don't like football. I don't even like football players. They tried to steal my woman. And so I never did like them very much. But when our game was over, we actually beat them by a few points. And it was one of those, did you ever, you ever have a, those of you who played, ever have a game where you could almost kick one in? And that was before the three-point thing. And uh, Gene Yelton and I were to shoot outside to pull them out on us. And from what we would call three-point line today, I hit nine of them. And Gene hit ten, and we beat them. And afterwards, Bracken County is a small county. Everybody poured out of the stands, and they were actually lifted us up and were carrying us around on the basketball floor. You thought you'd died and gone to heaven. And, and uh, when I looked down to see who was carrying me, it was my old 
coach. He stayed in touch with me. He died a couple of years ago, right before Christmas. And he called me the week before. He knew he was dying. And he said, Scott, you know I named my son after you, don't you? I said, yeah, Mr. Painter. I know that. His name is Scott Painter. He's a CPA in Indianapolis. You see, when things like this happen, your ego goes clear through the top of the roof. And to find a place where, where you keep Jesus as number one, we seldom are successful. Because those things can happen, and athletics is one of the things that, that does that. Back when I was in school, it was grades, too. I never was valedictorian. Alice Kay was, but I wasn't. I had to live with being number two. Yeah, that's most of my life, old number two. But anyway, but nobody likes that, see? And I understood why I did. I forgot my salutatorian speech, so you can see why I was number two. But anyhow, we struggle with the, with the whole idea of we owe everything to God for what he did for us through Jesus. That's called grace. Grace also refers to the content of our salvation. Because what we were given when we came to Jesus, we were given what the old songwriter said was a double cure. Saved from guilt... From, the, from the, the influence of sin, we were saved from the guilt of being a sinner and the power to overcome sin. We, we were given that power. Well, it goes like this. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for our sins. And... Which means then that what we had done, that we were guilty of doing, was forgiven and paid for. Because there ain't no free lunches. Our sin had to be paid for. And more than what I remember several years ago, when our oldest son was in school down in southern Kentucky, he got with a bunch of ornery cusses and went to Tennessee and got in trouble, was headed back toward college, driving too fast, got a ticket, with suspicion that there was alcohol on his breath, which I would bet it was 100% true. And so I got the invitation to come down to the judge and talk to him about it. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like maybes or wonder what's going to happen. I'm uncomfortable till I know pretty well how things are going. So years ago, there was a family here in town. Jim and Carol Jean McKenzie lived here, ran a, uh, ran a uh, insurance agency and some other stuff. 
And their older son, Philip, got into some trouble. I helped get him out of trouble. And now he's a judge over in Grayson. So I call him up and say, hey, Phil, I got this problem with Greg down here. What, what do you think we should do? Because I, I don't know. Here's what they say is wrong. And he just kind of giggled and said, you, you want me to call the judge? I know him pretty well. And I said, yeah, would you call the judge? And uh, So when I got down there, I walked in, and the judge said, Mr. Rawlings, no, he said, Pastor Rawlings, it appears to me that you've spared the rod and spoiled the child. But you do have friends in high places, and Phil McKenzie did call me, and I did agree to, to throw this out of court, but not until I tell you, till I chew you out real good. What I'm saying is, I knew that was going to happen. I like to know this is this way I'm put together. Don't come to me and tell me you're going to tell me later. You tell me now or I'm going to bug the daylights out of you. I want to know and get it done and get it behind me. That's the way I'm put together. Not saying it's good, just saying that's what it is. And I'm the same way about my faith. I don't want to wait till I die and open one eye to see whether I'm warm or cool. I want to, as the Scripture says, know in whom I am believed and be persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And it's that kind of faith, you see, that when we receive it, it can create real joy, almost giddiness inside of us, knowing I've got a lock on heaven. Now, the problem with that is we may think that that's really the reason why God saved us. And it's one of them. He does want all of us to go to heaven. But you see, what we need to understand here is that God saved us for a purpose other than just getting to heaven. Getting to heaven, being reconciled to him is a big deal. He's expecting you and me, he's expecting you and me to now live a life free from guilt and with the power to, to live it so that we can represent him to a lost and dying world. So that when they want to know what's it like to be a Christian, all they have to do is look at us. That's expected of our, by our Savior for you and me. He expects us now to be as gracious as he was. He said, I want you to forgive people in the same way that they forgive you. Well, we've got to learn to treat each other in such a way, a loving way, that when sinners see us, they're impressed for God. The history of the church is horrible when it comes to that. And you know, there is a, such a thing that I call extreme grace that even makes me uncomfortable. Because I'm one of those who thinks that, you know, after you become a Christian, sheesh. But when you go over into the book of, of, uh, of Corinthians, which was a troubled church, I'll grant you that. They had a guy there living. He was a member of their church, living 
with them, who was doing just hor- Well, let's read it. Chapter 5, verse 1. He said, Paul said, it is actually reported that there is a sec- there's sexual immorality among you of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man is living with his father's wife. His daddy's dead. And you're proud of it. Now, the Apostle Paul says you need to kick the sucker out with the understanding that he will repent. He's welcome back. And later on, it actually says that he was. And he says, now look. Such were some of you as far as sinners. There's no room for you to point fingers. He's repented. He's welcome back. That's tough because it's going to ruin our reputation. But we're in the saving business, aren't we? And so extending to that bird that you thought ought to be beaten with a stick or hung by his heels, extending to him grace, unmerited favor for what he's done. Yeah, preacher, but he repented. He's no different from any of you. But you see, we like to pick the sins. And the sins that we don't do are the real bad ones. And we know people who do them, so we badmouth them. Be careful. We're here for the purpose of extending grace. And not to judge. For the Bible says in very clear language, Concerning our brethren in the church, judge not, lest you be judged by the same measuring stick that you use to judge others. But yet, we're, we're quicker to judge than we are to encourage. We must be careful. We must be careful. So we can do this, what sounds really tough to do, because he not only took away our guilt, he gave us then the power through the presence, through his divine presence called the Holy Spirit to assist us in doing what we couldn't do without him. And that's the extension of the same grace that we receive to others. We have had the same Blink our eyes at sin among ourselves. Couples living together without the benefit of marriage. Kids having sex and their parents giving the girls a little thing to stick on them here so they won't get pregnant. And just blinking her eyes at it like, well, I don't want my kid to get pregnant. Wouldn't it be a whole lot better if their faith were strong enough that you wouldn't have to worry about to start with? But you see, we haven't done a very good job of explaining to people what's expected of us. Oh, it's important to go to the church meetings. The Bible says so. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as a man or some is, but that much more as we see the day of the second coming. Grace. Extreme grace. Well, the early church actually were, you know, the, they did some crazy things just like we do. In Rome, the church in Rome actually concluded that, look, if God's grace 
is ever increasing according to how bad we are, then it doesn't make any difference how bad we are because God's grace is going to extend to that extreme. The Apostle Paul wrote him a nasty letter and in the sixth chapter, uh, first verses of the book, he said, he, he addressed that subject and, and he was really strong about it because how we live is important. What shall we say then? Which means... I'm getting ready to tell you something that you better at least set up and take notice to because if you don't, I'm coming to put my finger up your nose. It's a therefore. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? God forbid. How shall we who are dead to sin, which means separated from, living any longer in it? So he makes it clear that the goal is a purity of life among God's people. And we want to help you start with our children here to achieve that because we haven't done a very good job in the past. The number of our children who are sexually active, had illegitimate children, is not a whole lot different from those who don't go to church. So what does, what does that do to our witness? So the pagan can honestly say, heck, I'm as good as they are, and it's true. So what I'm pleading with you for is that we take seriously what God has done for us and what He expects of us. The New Testament is the purveyor of a faith that deals primarily with the inner being of an individual, not his outward, just his outward performance. Because if your outperformance is good and your inside is bad, and, and the Jews had that problem, you remember Jesus said you're like whitewashed sepulchers. On the inside, you're rotting bones, and on the outside, you really look good. But if the inside has been purified by the blood of the Lamb, and the outside then will take care of itself. So he was essentially saying, we want you fixed from the inside out. We want your heart to be drastically and noticeably changed. To the extent that your life as you live it on a daily basis is a recommendation to God himself. For you see, God reads, looks primarily upon the heart and not just on our outward behavior. And he addresses that in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we talked about the difference between cheap grace and discipleship. Actually, the guy who came up with the term cheap grace was a guy, German guy who lived and died under Nazism. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and in about 1934, he wrote a book entitled The Cost of Discipleship. 
What does it cost God to create disciples? And what does it cost us to be a disciple? Jesus made it very clear, and, and his, that book on the cost of discipleship was a commentary on uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. You see, the Bible is, I think, extremely clear about grace, where it came from, what it's to achieve. It is actually intended to achieve in our life the same thing that was produced in the life of our God. Our God gave us the gift of eternal life Because of our faith, because of his grace and mercy, he then expects you and me, and this is kind of hard to get through our head because we've had easy believism for so long. Just believe in Jesus, go to church, put some money in the bucket, da-da-da-da-da, you know, and everything is hunky-dory. Well, it ain't. Obviously, it isn't. Because of the church's influence and the power of the church has just really gone down the commode. We, we have lived in an era, it appears to me, and this will sound somewhat judgmental, but I don't mean it that way. I'm trying to appraise what is and what we should do about it. I think we have had a lot of baptized believers who have never had their heart converted. And we need, therefore, to examine ourselves to see where we stand with God and each other on a routine basis, which, after all, is the purpose of communion. That's why we talked about it a couple weeks ago. God reads the heart of people. And he says so very clearly here in the seventh chapter. And he makes it clear. Cheap Grace says this. I actually had this to happen here locally. A guy that attended our church, I was in a restaurant, came in, he was already there, and he said, hey, you see that girl over there? She just bought her a ticket to heaven. She just said she believed in Jesus. Okay. That woman never attended church. She never took communion. She was never baptized. And she was led to believe by one of us that she had a ticket to heaven. That's what I call easy believism. And it's nowhere supported in the Bible. Here's, here's what the Bible says. He says, this is in that, the cost of discipleship, this commentary, that, and it's what we referred to here in the seventh chapter, starting verse 13. It says, enter through the narrow gate, for the wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. 
and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to eternal life and only a few find it. What he's saying is, folks, you better take it seriously. These are the words of Jesus, not just mine. Because there are many who will come to you and say, oh, this is all you have to do. This is all you have to do. Jesus is looking for followers of him who will bring the same grace that we received and offer it to a lost and dying world. And when it does, it should produce in them the same joy that it produced in us. From the standpoint of God, grace was costly. It cost him his only begotten son. And for us to think that it should cost us nothing is being foolhardy. I'm going to close with a story. I think I've said used it before here, but it worked real good, so I'll use it again. There's a story about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had the best teachers in the world. He was an inheritor of the wisdom of Plato and then his teacher, Aristotle. He was arguably the greatest field general that ever lived. He's in the same caliber as MacArthur and Patton in our day. The word was that within his ranks was another a young man not even in his 20s, who in the heat of battle when they were taking Babylon broke and ran a couple of times. And the word came to Alexander that that had happened. He said, what's his name? The commander sheepishly said, his name is Alexander. The great Alexander said, bring him to me. And in the tent of his commander, Alexander asked him, is it true what I'm told that in the heat of battle you broke and ran? He said, yes, sir. And he said, and what's your name? He said, my name, sir, is Alexander. Alexander said, and so is mine. So you either change your name or change your ways. We call ourselves Christians. And maybe, just maybe, we all need to look at ourselves critically in light of what God expects of us. And either change our ways or change our name. God has placed right in our hands the capacity to give to people, extend to them grace instead of judgment. 
the hope of living eternally because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Let's not fail our God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word and for your Holy Spirit. And maybe this morning, more than anything else, I thank you for your love that you express to us through Jesus and his taking our place on the cross. And because of your mercy and your grace, giving us not just the hope, but the assurance of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. O oh God, bless this gathering of people and help us to reevaluate where we stand with you and with each other. And the next time we take communion, May we, O oh God, examine ourselves and renew our covenant with you and each other to be your instrument of bringing to our community the power and the glory of the kingdom of God. O oh Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you for being here and for your attention. Please, if you haven't gotten your tickets to, uh, to the dinner next Sunday night, get them and bring somebody with you. And if, you, if you're broke, get them free. You're free to go. <laughs> Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.